Now let's focus our attention to the Word of God. Turning your books to the, turning your Bibles to the book of Philemon, Philemon, Philemon. Let us uh, look at verse 17. We're going to read down to the end of the book. Oh, sorry. All right, better? All right. Philemon, verse 17. We read as follows. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, Prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly, gracious Father, we, we come humbly before your holy word today. It is, it is your word. It is scripture. It is breathed out by you. This book, this passage was, was inspired and you conferred upon the church the wisdom to know that this would be included as canon. And Lord, as we look to your word and we, we seek wisdom, we pray that our hearts would be tender and humble before you. We pray that we would learn, we pray that we would be obedient, and we pray that we would be submissive and surrender to your will. God, have mercy on us. We pray for, O Lord, the wisdom to uh, discern the truth of your word, the ability to hear it, and and the desire to carry it out and do it. O Lord Jesus, we love you, we praise you, and thank you for your word. I ask for your Holy Spirit to anoint my head to anoint my heart, to anoint my lips. Carry me along by your power to preach your word with conviction, with clarity, and boldness. In Christ's name, amen. We are in the summer season, and in the summer season, it's usually called blockbuster season in Hollywood. Why is it called blockbuster season? Well, this is when all the big blockbuster movies... Uh, come out. This is when the movies that make hundreds of millions in dollars are released, whether it's an Avengers movie or an Avatar movie, um, although Avatar was released closer to Christmas season. Um, these are the movies, these are the tentpole movies that, that Hollywood studios bank on to make a lot of money because kids are off of school, families are together, and they go out to the movies. 
Um, remarkably, though, the movie theaters have been really hurting since the pandemic. But that's a whole other story. But what is it that draws people to blockbuster movies? What is it that draws people to see Avatar or Harry Potter or Avengers? Well, it's fantasy. It's escapism. And the reality is we live in a broken world. We live in a messed up world. A lot of us have difficulties and struggles in our lives. And to escape to go to a movie and to immerse ourselves in a world of fantasy is pleasurable. It's an escape from reality. And generally in these movies, there's always a fight between good and evil. In fact, there's nothing more that people like than a good story about good versus evil. We want our villains and we want our good guys. And we want the good guys to defeat the villains and destroy them. Why is that? And that is because we have a lot of villains in our life. And we would like to destroy them, but we can't. And so we ingratiate ourselves and we indulge ourselves in the fantasy world to see the villain get defeated and get our sense of satisfaction and vindication. Whether it was an epic novel like Homer's Odyssey, whether it's the modern tentpole blockbuster, or it's the future of VR, we will always uh, try to escape reality and indulge our fantasy in the reality of seeing the good versus evil, revenge and justice type of movie. There's one movie, however, that came out not too long ago that I really enjoyed, and it wasn't a movie about revenge, and it wasn't a movie about good versus evil, although it was to some extent. It was a movie about survival. It was a movie about forgiveness. It was about a man called Louis Zamperini. It was a movie called Unbroken. And for those of you who don't know who Louis Zamperini is, he was an Olympic runner, um, in the early 20th century, who had, um, who had volunteered and was uh, sent to um, the Pacific coast during World War II to fight Japan. Uh, Louis Zamperini's plane was shot down, and, and he and a few of his uh, fellow soldiers were stranded in a raft um, for over 40 days, surrounded by sharks, shot at by uh, bullets all around them, uh, their, their, their raft was uh, deflated by the bullets and they almost eaten by sharks. It's just an amazing, harrowing tale. He survives that only to see an island in the distance and say he's going to survive and escape and he's picked up by Japanese um, soldiers and he's brought to a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Um, the man is, like many, is brutally tortured. He's brutally tormented um, under a really cruel... Uh, um, uh, system of the prisoner war camps in Japan. Um, the movie showcases a lot of what he experienced and the cruelty and the violence. Um, and it's really a story about survival, how he survived all this and eventually he was rescued and he got home. The movie ends on that note but doesn't tell the second half of the story. Louis Zamperini comes back to, um, he comes back to America. And like many soldiers who went through this torture, I had PTSD, and Zamperini uh, became an alcoholic and became very angry and bitter. He was afraid to leave the house. He, he had a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, and um, he had outbursts of anger. He couldn't resolve all the torture. He would have flashbacks that he went through. Although he survived it, he was a broken man. So although he was unbroken physically, he was broken spiritually, he was broken mentally. He got married thinking that would solve his problems. 
but it only made it worse. His drinking got worse. And he realized one night he was really lost his mind when he found himself on top of his wife choking her while she was pregnant. She left him. And shortly later, she invites him to a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. Now, he was never one whose religion had a very bitter gripe against God. He was very angry against God for all that he suffered, particularly that his ankle was broken during his imprisonment in Japan. And because of that, he could never run again and never participate in Olympics. And he blamed God for that. So he goes to the Billy Graham crusade hoping to make amends with his wife and appease her. As he's walking out of the crusade and Billy Graham is preaching, God struck his heart. He began to realize something. He remembered when he was floating on that raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, he made a promise to God that if God would save him, he would serve him all the days of his life. And then he thought about how all the bullets hit those, that raft and he survived. And he thought about how he thought about how the sharks almost ate him, and he survived. And he, he thought about how he was brutally beaten and tortured in the camp, and he survived. And he realized then and there, it was the hand of God the whole way that was keeping him. At that moment, rather than being angry with God, he was broken before God. He turned around and he humbled himself and repented. He understood what it meant to be forgiven. From that point forward, Louis Zamperini became a different person. He became a good husband, a good father. He became a preacher of the gospel. Amazingly, several years later, he went back to Japan to look for the bird. Who was the bird? The bird was the captain of the Japanese army who brutally tortured and beat him and took pleasure in humiliating him and destroying him. Louis Zamperini hated the bird so much that when he first came back from from Japan, he, he was trying to collect money to go back to Japan, hunt down the bird, and kill him. But when God touched his heart, he wanted to hunt down the bird for a different reason this time. He wanted to hunt down the bird to forgive him and let him know about the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. It's a powerful story. And I, there's books about it, there's movies about it. Louis Zamperini, look it up. It's, it's a fantastic and inspirational story. Well, what does this all have to do with Philemon? It's about forgiveness. Philemon is all about forgiveness. There's one thing that stands out in the book of Philemon. It's forgiveness. That is the theme of the book. In fact, that is the theme of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It is the good news that God forgives sinners and reconciles the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a message about us who are who are sinful creatures who have rebelled against our, our maker, who have defied his moral laws, who have, who have stuck out our chest against him, and he reaches down and condescends to humanity through his son and dies on the cross for our sins and provides the opportunity for us to be reconciled, to believe in him, and to have acceptance with God. Philemon is not a big theological letter. There's not a lot of Pauline theology here like Romans, the indicative to enforce the imperative. No, it's personal. It's a personal letter written to a family that's been broken by sin and the appeal is for love's sake and that love's sake will be demonstrated by forgiveness and reconciliation. And that is the core of love. It's the core of the gospel. And sadly... So many Christians want the forgiveness of God. They want the burden of their guilt removed, but will not forgive others who have offended them. 
We hold the offenses of others so high and bear our grudges. And yet we think very little of the sins that we've sinned against God that he's wiped away. F.F. Bruce says this, the gospel is a message of forgiveness. It could not be otherwise because it's the gospel of God. God is a forgiving God. It is to be expected then that those who receive the forgiveness which God holds out in the gospel, those who call him the Father, will display something of his character and show a forgiving attitude towards others. And that is the reason why Paul is writing this letter to Philemon. He's urging, he's appealing to Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Now, just to quickly summarize for those who haven't been with me the last few weeks, Onesimus was a member of Philemon's household. He was a slave. He took off. He ran away. Whatever his reasons were, he stole some money in the process. And in Roman times, in Roman law, that was, that was, big, that was a big deal. Now Paul is writing to him and appealing to his love, appealing to his Christianity to not only forgive Onesimus, but to free him from his slave, receive him back as a brother, not just a slave. It's a remarkable story. And as I think Mari was referring to on this 4th of July coming up, and we talk about freedom and independence, we see about the great freedom we have in Christ and how that communicates or communes over to the way we deal with people. There are four verbs in our passage today that outline our message. Four verbs, four imperatives that I want us to look at. Receive, charge, refresh, prepare. Let me repeat that. Receive, charge, refresh, prepare. Number one, receive. What is Paul asking Philemon to do after all this? Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. That's the first thing I want us to see. And in all four of these imperatives, I want us to see that the gospel is not something just believed. The gospel is not something just preached. But the gospel is something applied. The gospel is lived out in the way we live, the way we deal with others. The gospel must be acted out. And that is precisely what we're going to see in each aspect of these four imperatives. The gospel lived out. The gospel applied. And that first one, receive, Paul is asking Philemon very simple. When Onesimus comes back to you, I want you to receive him back as if you were receiving me. Now remember, Philemon has high esteem and high respect for Paul. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a missionary. He's a church planner. And from what we gather, Philemon is a partner in the ministry. Now, what does that partnership mean and what does it entail? Well, first and foremost, it tells us that he was probably a financial backer of Paul's gospel work. He believed in the ministry of the gospel and he was supporting it with his finances. Not only that, but he was probably contributing with hands-on ministry, more than likely engaging with Paul, uh, whether it was visiting him or whether it was when he was free, going around with him to share the gospel in his itinerant ministry. He was a partner with Paul, and Paul considered him a partner. He considered him one with this gospel ministry team. And he's saying, listen, if you respect me and you, you're my partner and you're with me, I'm asking you, receive Onesimus like you would receive me. What he's saying is, when you look at Onesimus, don't just look at the man who did you wrong. I want you to see me, Paul. 
Now this is very odd here, and he's asking him to do something which is to look at him in a representative form through Onesimus, to treat him as his avatar. But the bigger picture here is pointing us to the gospel. It's pointing us to the gospel because the way Paul is talking here, he's really talking about how all of us are come to God. We don't come to God on our own terms. I don't come to God as Bob Jinzira. You don't come to God in your own name. We come to God in the name of Jesus. When God receives us, he doesn't receive us as we are. He receives us as Christ Jesus dwells in us. In fact, there is no way you can go to God on your own, on your own terms. You cannot go to God on your own merit. You cannot go to God on your own credibility. It must be in Christ Jesus. You see, like Onesimus, we are all runaway slaves, aren't we? We were all slaves to sin. We were all slaves to Satan. We were all slaves to death. We were slaves to the passions of our flesh, passing our days in malice and envy. We were rebelling against God. We were running from him. Far from seeking God, as many people think, oh, all people are seeking God. No, we're all running as fast and far from God as we can. Even the most hardened reprobate, even the most hardened sinner believes in God deep in his heart. That's why he hates God so much. There wouldn't be such hatred and hostility for God if you didn't believe in him. The hostility indicates the reality that God exists. But people do not want to be accountable to this God. They want to run from him and they want to shut him out. So we are all runaway slaves. We all took off on our own and declared our independence from God. We want to be free from the constraints of his law, free from accountability, free to do what we want. But praise the Lord that he cares enough, as we talked earlier about his elect, that he effectually calls us. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came what? To seek and save the lost. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. All these parables show us something very important. That God seeks the sinner and will leave the 99 to go after the one. He brings us back. And then Christ cleanses us. He renews us. He forgives us and presents us to the Father now clothed in his righteousness. Ephesians 1.6 tells us we are accepted in the Beloved. Our acceptance with God is predicated on the fact that our life is hidden in Christ. It is no longer Bob Jinzer, as I said, or Paul or Paulus. It is who we are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, the life I live, I now live not, not by myself, but I am in Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. It is he who dwells in us. We are clothed in him. And in the beloved, we find acceptance and approval with God. This is important because, mark this, don't let the preachers and pastors tell you you need to accept Christ into your heart. Jesus does not need your acceptance. He accepts us. He receives us. And that acceptance is based on the forgiveness of Christ, the pardon we receive, and the righteousness he imputes to us that we can stand before the throne of God. And so, as Paul says, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. In the same way, we are received by God 
not because of we're good people, but we're received because of Jesus Christ. God sees us as his son. So when I come before him, he sees Christ in us. So that's the first thing of how the gospel is lived out here. The second one, or the second verb or imperative is the word charge, verse 18 through 19. It says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So what, what wrong could have Onesimus done? Well, there's a few things he's done wrong. Well, number one, in, in, in running away as a slave, he's clearly um, cost Onesimus money economically as he's lost in his financial, uh, um, uh, whatever, his, his stewardship of his home. Um, there's a loss there. There's a financial loss. But more than likely, he stole from, from Philemon. And that's natural. If you're a slave and you run away, you don't have no money on you. You can't survive on your own. You're a slave. You have to steal to survive. It's like someone, if they break out of jail, what's the first thing a, a, a prison break, does? someone who breaks out of prison does? They're going to find a house. They want to find clothes, money, food, a, a, a wallet with a driver's license. They need to survive. They're, they have nothing. And so clearly, Onesimus stole. He, he took something from Philemon, and he, 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 he violated. He, he broke God's commandments. And, and, and again, as I go back a couple of weeks ago, regardless of our view that morally slavery is wrong, and we agree with that fundamentally, this is the first century Rome. Everybody was either free or slave. This was the economy. This was not a democracy. This was not Western civilization. This was the Roman Empire. It was where you had one man who called himself God who ruled Rome, and you were either a slave or free. This was the system, and it wasn't going to be changed overnight. So we have to accept the system as it is and look at it from within that system. So you could see where for Philemon, receiving Onesimus back is costly. It meant not just forgiving him in an emotional sense. This wasn't personal. Oh, you hurt my feelings. I need to forgive you. This was monetary. This was, there was actually, there was actually an injury. There was a financial injury. There was an, a, an offense, a violation you see, you could hurt my feelings, and that might be hard to forgive. But, you know, when you hurt me, if you injure me, you take something from me, or you steal from me, or you, you, you hurt my family, or you, hurt, you come into my home, and you, or you violate me or my, my people, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to react. That's natural, right? And what Paul is saying, I want you to be more than natural. I want you to be like Christ. I want you to forgive this man. But notice what he says. He says, if he's done anything wrong, charge it to my account. Anything he owes you. What he's doing is he's putting himself in the gap. He's putting himself as a mediator between Onesimus and Philemon. He's saying, listen, he's did you wrong. He's injured you. He's robbed from you. He's hurt you. He says, put that on me. I'll pay for it. I'll take care of it. So you can receive him back and there's nothing to complain about anymore. I'll satisfy the demands of the law. I'll satisfy the injury. I'll satisfy the penalty. And you will have no excuse not to receive him back. What is Paul doing? He's being Christ-like. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus came to this world, he lived a perfect life. And sinless life. When he went to the cross, it wasn't because Jesus was victimized. It wasn't because the the Jews rejected him. And although these are uh, uh, secondary causes, the primary cause is that God put him there. 
Because he came to be our substitute. He came so that we can charge to his account our sins. That word charge there is the word impute in Greek. The word impute means to reckon or to deposit into an account. Charge an account. It means that when Jesus went to the cross, all of our sins were placed on him. All those wrongs and those injuries. Well, how did we wrong and injure God? How have we, how have we offended God? How have we offended God? How have we injured God? Our sins. Every sin we commit is a robbery from God. I want you to think about that. Every time you sin against God, you steal from him. How do you steal? In two ways. Number one, we owe God our absolute obedience. God, it doesn't suggest that we obey him. He expects us that we're created in his image. We're to reflect his glory in his image. God created us to have a relationship with him. And when we sin, what we're saying is, God, you're not important. I'm important. I'll do what I want. Not only do you steal the obedience that we owe him, but you steal from his honor and glory. We put the honor and glory for ourselves. When we don't render to God the worship and service that he's owed, we steal. And the Bible refers to sin as incurring a debt. These violations that occur over and over in our lives accrue into a debt. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And this is all in sync with our Colossians Philemon series. But look at what Paul says here. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Not some of them, all of them. Why? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside Nailing it to the cross. Christ took our sins, the debt we owed God. You know, America is what, 38 trillion in debt? The average American has consumer debt. You know how debt could be, it could be weighty. When debt is canceled, I mean, look what just happened this week. A lot of college students or former college students were hoping to have their debt erased with the with the debt forgiveness program, and the Supreme Court overthrew that. People are burdened with their debt. You see, human governments can't really uh, get rid of debt. Someone has to pay for it. The debt wasn't being erased. It was just the cost was being pushed to someone else. If the debt forgiveness program had went through and the Supreme Court approved of it, what would have been happening is you and I would be paying the debt. Someone's got to pay it. And in the same way, the debt that we owe to God, has to be paid. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the debt is gone. It doesn't just magically disappear. The debt must still be paid. And when Jesus died, he paid the debt in full. Every penny, every ounce of energy that we owe God, Jesus Christ gave to the Father. He paid it all in full with a big stamp. Paid in full. Done, forgiven. That's what Christianity, that's what the gospel is about. It's an amazing thing. The amazing thing is, God is the one who we owe, and by Christ forgiving us, by God forgiving us through Christ, God absorbs the loss. What he does is he absorbs the loss, he absorbs the pain, 
He suffers. And that's exactly what forgiveness is for others. You see, if we're truly going to forgive other people, the forgiveness means that we incur the cost. By forgiving someone and letting them off the hook for what they've done to us, it means that, that we, we absorb the pain. We absorb the hurt. We absorb the injury. Why? Because Jesus did it for you and I. For one last zinger, Paul says to Philemon, to say nothing of you owing me your own self. What do we make of this statement? What does it mean? Well, I think it's either one of two things. Either he made a promise to Paul to help a ministry and failed to keep his promise. And Onesimus' service would have made up for his failure. Verse 13 seems to indicate that. Or it could very well be that he's just referring to the ministerial reciprocation. Galatians 6.6 6 is let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul lays out the principle those who preach the gospel are to earn their living by the gospel. Maybe he's saying, listen, Philemon, you owe me anyway. I don't have to pay this debt. I don't have to pay you. You should be able to pay this yourself, but I'm willing to do it if it means reconciling you and Onesimus. What he's trying to do is basically help Philemon to see that Paul shouldn't have to put himself out there. He should be willing to absorb the loss and the pain himself and to forgive Onesimus. You see, that's what makes forgiveness hard. You ever hear the saying, I'll forgive, but I won't forget? When you say, I won't forget, what you're really saying is, I'm not going to forgive you. Forgiveness is clearing the debt, never bringing it up again, never throwing it in someone's face, never reminding someone of what you forgave them for. Forgiveness is forgiveness. It's washed, it's clean, it's over. And that's not easy for people to do because the natural man wants revenge and wants justice. God shows us grace and mercy. The divine way is grace and mercy. The human way is justice and vengeance. You know, when you see some people suffer so much, you wonder how can people possibly forgive? A great example is Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband was murdered. We know her and Jim Elliot. Her husband, Jim Elliot, were missionaries. They were sent to the uh, Quechua Indians in Ecuador in 1959. And shortly after they arrived, or 53 rather, shortly after they arrived and began their ministry, they didn't even get a, a, a start. Her husband was killed by one of the tribesmen, murdered, spear went right through his heart. Now, think about it. She could have said, you know what? I'm mad at you, God. I'm mad at these people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn this tribe to the ground and I'm going to go back to America and I'm not serving God anymore. She was pregnant. Her husband was murdered. But if she had sought revenge and had a bitter spirit, where would she be? No, instead she forgave. She forgave the tribe. She forgave her husband's murderer and she stood there and ministered the gospel until she saw the entire tribe come to faith in Christ. She says this, Elizabeth Elliot, and she has a website. She's in, she's in her 90s, still has 80s. Oh, she died. I'm sorry. Forgive me. <laughs> but there's a website with all her information. 
Um, but a wonderful woman of God. She's wrote so many books. Listen to what she says. Following Christ means walking the road he walked. And in order to forgive us, he had to die. His followers may not refuse to relinquish his own right, his own territory, his own comfort, or anything he regards as his. Forgiveness is relinquishment. It is a laying down. No one could take it from us any more than anyone could take the life of Jesus if he had it not laid it down of his own will. But we can do as he did. We can offer it up, writing off whatever loss it may entail in the sure knowledge that the man who loses his life or his reputation or his face or anything else for the sake of Christ will save it. That's Elizabeth Elliot in her own words. But maybe better yet, R.C. Sproul says this, we tend to be far more ungenerous in forgiving others than God is in forgiving us. If God were to be as reluctant to forgive us as we are in forgiving those who sin against us, we would be in serious trouble. As Christians, we are forgiven people. We are likewise called to be forgiving people. Jesus clearly sets forth an ethic of charity in his teaching and in his behavior with those who wrong us. An unwillingness to forgive clearly has no place in the kingdom and may in fact signal that such a person has not experienced the initial forgiveness of God in his or her life. Charge. Next one, refresh. Now that we have receive, charge, our third verb is refresh. It says... In verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord refresh my heart in Christ. Now, remember a few verses earlier, he talked about um, how Philemon refreshed often the people in the church. Verse 7, he says, for I derive much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints who have been refreshed through you. We talked about this a few weeks ago where Philemon was a source of refreshment to the church, refreshment to the people of God. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, he says, if, if there's anything between us, if, if we have a relationship, he says, I want some benefit from you as well. Refresh my heart now. Refresh my heart. He's asking Onesimus to take the step forward to be the better person and to bring refreshing to Paul's own heart, to his own ministry. Not only that, but he holds him to a high expectation. He says in verse 21, confidence of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. That's the beautiful thing here. Paul doesn't write in a way where he's expecting him to fail. He expects him to exceed his expectations. Paul had confidence he had the belief, knowing Philemon well enough, that Philemon wouldn't eat, not just meet Paul's expectations in refreshing his heart, but exceed them. The question is, how could he exceed his expectations? Well, I think that the point is clear. If you look back in verse 16, he says, Receive him back, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, his beloved brother. He's telling him not only to forgive him, not only to receive him, but free him. He's telling him, set him free. Take him back, not as a slave, but as your friend, as your brother in Christ. Now that may sound to us as 21st century Americans, well, that's normal. We would expect that. In the first century, that was radical. That was radical love. You see, because in the first century, you could get your freedom, but it came at a high cost. Usually like five years worth of wages 
would be the with the cost of freeing yourself as a slave in the ancient world. That's why some of the men would go to gladiator arenas. You could fight in a gladiator arena and win. You could win your freedom. It was a heavy price to pay. And he's saying to him, not only do I want you to forgive Onesimus, to receive him into your family, but I want you to free him. Isn't this a picture of the gospel? Here we are, we're rebel sinners. We've offended God. We've ran away from him. We've, we've thumbed our noses at him. Not only does he forgive us and wipe the slate clean, not only does he receive us back into the family and call us his sons and daughters, but what does he do? He sits us down. He frees us and makes us co-heirs with Christ. Not a slave, but a co-heir with Christ. Whoa! He's given us all things. And ought we not to be that charitable with others? Why are we so stingy with grace with other people when God is so refreshing to us? When God is so merciful, when God is so giving, why do we withhold grace? We want law for everyone else, but we want grace for us. If God shows us grace, we ought to show others grace. Philemon was being tested. He was, how he responded to the situation would have an effect of either bringing refreshing on Paul and the church or bring bitterness and harm. On the one hand, he could have stood by the law. He could have said, this is my right. I have a right to, to have Onesimus punished. I'm going to sell him. I'm going to get my money back. And I have a right to do this because it's the law. It's my right. Or he could forfeit his rights, show grace, forgiveness, reconcile, and bring great refreshing to the church, great refreshing to Paul. And what a commentary on the gospel. One would either bring harm to the gospel, one would advance the gospel. It's the same with us. How we respond to the hurts and offenses we deal with in life are either going to bring refreshing or bitterness upon people around us. We're either going to bring glory to Christ and advance the gospel, or we're going to hurt and undermine the gospel. And this is something we need to understand, because if we cannot forgive, we cannot preach the gospel. When you're a forgiving person, you're a refreshing person. When you're a person who is resentful and bitter and burdened with grievances, you become a rotten person. Your disposition changes, your face changes, and instead of being refreshing, you become a rottenness to people. This is what has characterized our politics in America and why we're so divided. Both parties are burdened with bitterness and anger and grievances and hatred. A bitter root defiles many, the Bible says. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see, everything was at stake for Philemon. If Philemon didn't respond correctly to this, it would destroy the church in his house. A bitter root is like a poisonous plant. Poison kills, but when people are bitter... It's like poison to everyone around them. Do you struggle with bitterness? Are you struggling with unforgiveness in your heart today? Have people hurt you or done you wrong? In your family, 
church and your past? Do you possess a critical or cynical attitude? Do you find pleasure speaking negatively of people? Do you try to get others to dislike people that have hurt you? Do you have feelings of anger and malice towards anyone in particular? Do you resent anyone? Do you experience outbursts of anger? Have others said things to you that are unpleasant? Is there someone you simply refuse to forgive? If God has forgiven us so much, we need to let it go. You see, the person we think we're punishing by being angry with and resentful, they're not being punished. The only person we punish is ourselves. We destroy ourselves with a root of bitterness. The poison, the gall of bitterness destroys us within and without and everyone around us. It's an awful thing. Finally and fourthly, my last and final point is prepare. Prepare. And this, I think, really sets up this final point of being the gospel applied. Paul wishes to visit. He says in verse 22 at this time, prepare. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul is hopeful that he'll be freed from prison soon and he desires to visit the church of Philemon. He desires to visit with him and spend time with him. He's saying, prepare a guest room for me. But I don't think Paul is so worried about the fabric on the bed or the paint color in the room. What Paul is really saying is prepare a place where I'll feel welcome. Prepare a place where I'll feel at home. Prepare a place that when I come visit you, I'll be glad to be there. You see the point I'm trying to make? Is that when you look at a church, when a church has unforgiveness and bitterness in it, is the Lord Jesus welcome? Does he find a home there? Of course not. But when we show forgiveness and mercy and grace, then the Lord Jesus is welcome. We prepare a place for the Lord. And more importantly, as an individual, you prepare a place for the Lord in your heart when you are forgiving towards others. When you hold bitterness in your heart and anger and unforgiveness, you are basically saying to the Lord, I don't want you in my heart. You are, he is not welcome. You have not prepared a room for him in your heart because you are, have self on the throne. These correlations can't be ignored. The gospel is not just to be preached. It is not just to be professed. It is not just to be believed. The gospel must be lived. And if the gospel can't be lived, then our testimony is worthless. Let me conclude by saying this. Philemon is the third smallest book in the Bible. Comes in at only 335 words. But the message to the church is loud and clear. We're not just to believe in Christ, but to be like Christ. To receive others as Christ received us. To forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. To welcome others so that Christ would be welcome here. To show the love of Christ and be willing to absorb the debt and pain and loss and suffering of whatever injury we incur for the glory of God and the gospel. Maybe not everyone here today is a believer. Have you come to faith in Christ? 
Do you know that your sins, although they are dark as crimson, God promises to forgive us and make them as white as snow. Jesus has the power to cleanse and forgive all the sins we've forgiven against him. But he bids us to repent, to believe in him, to turn from our ways, to turn from our selfishness and believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You're hearing the word today. And the word is this, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be confession. There needs to be heartfelt faith in Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God, that he was born a perfect man, lived a sinless life. He died for our sins in our place. And he rose from the dead. And he, as Brother Naveen said, rules at the right hand of God. Jesus is alive. And he is the sovereign king of this world. Whether you like it or not, Jesus is king. And he'll come back one day. He's going to establish his kingdom. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And now he offers us peace. But one day there will come a day when peace will no longer be offered. So let this time be the acceptable day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you once again for this this time, this word. Thank you for helping us to finish our our series on Colossians and Philemon. I pray, Father, that uh, all these words that we heard today would not just roll off our roll up through us like water off a duck's back. But Lord, I pray that we would really hear the word and do the word for your sake, for love's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.